We'll be in Philippians. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Um, so just to kind of get us rolling, I, I was just thinking about uh, some, mo- some moments. And have you ever had this kind of moment where you are in a position that deserves to be comforted, but you find yourself being the comforter? And I don't, yeah, well, yeah, have you ever had that moment, like where you're in a position to need comforting, but yet you end up finding yourself being the one comforting others? You know, I, I certainly have, and I, I've seen this and experienced this at, at funerals quite often, but we're going to go for, I want to tell a story a little bit of a, from a lighter, lighter moment. I mean, I kind of dug into the archives, and I had this friend named Chuck growing up, and I would go to his house, and we would play, and we'd do all sorts of crazy stuff, but one day we were kind of doing what elementary school boys do, fifth grade, so really like way back, and, and we're like chasing and roughhousing, whatever, and I'm going to run after him. He's going through a doorway, and he's trying to prevent me from getting to him, and he slams the door, and it just all four of these fingers just get annihilated in the door. Like, it felt like the door shut all the way, which, you know, that's a space like that. And then it kind of opened back up. And, and we both just, like, scream. Oh, my God. You know, we both scream. And I, I know why I'm screaming. And, I'm not, you know, I don't know, quite know why he's screaming. But then before I even get a chance to, like, cradle my broken hand, he has grabbed my hand and made it his. And he's like screaming like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And I'm screaming, oh my gosh, except for I'm like this, and he's like this. And, and it's just like, what is going on? And we're both freaked out. And I see that like, we're not going to make it past this moment unless I calm Chuck down. So like, so I'm sitting here and like with all four of my fingers throbbing and not quite knowing the extent of the damage they're in because I haven't seen them yet. I'm like, I'm now comforting Chuck. Chuck, it's okay. It's going to be okay. My, I still have my hand. I think it's going to be okay. And I finally get Chuck calmed down. And I get my hand back. And, and it was such a funny moment. Chuck was a very empathetic, good friend, obviously. But this is kind of the moment that we find Paul in today. Noah's hand didn't get slammed in the door, but he is bringing comfort when he is the one in a tough situation. So with that setting us up, let me pray for us real quick. Um, God, um, man, we've already had so many just great pictures of your love and grace, Lord, just in the selfless love of a parent, Lord, who constantly are denying themselves, Lord, to, to better their kids. Lord, are constantly giving on themselves, constantly, Lord, doing all they can to, to provide for their kids and the, the example these families have set. And God, I thank you that you have loved us in that same way, Lord, that at great expense to yourself, Lord, you have met our need, Lord, in Christ. Lord, I pray for this morning, God. I pray as we come to your word here in Philippians in this letter that Paul wrote, Lord, to his friends in Philippi, Lord, that we would not only uh, be encouraged, but, Lord, that we would be changed. Lord, that we would be confronted by the reality of your grace in Jesus Christ. And, Lord, that uh, and, and knowing that we all come in here kind of from different avenues of life, different worldviews, even different kind of faith views, I pray, Lord, that in this time, regardless of my words, knowing that they are limited, I pray that uh, you would speak to hearts. Lord, I pray that, you, that somehow every person in this room would get a glimpse of the relief and redemption and salvation that can only be in Christ. And Lord, how it's not just for our eternity, but it's for the here and now. And so Lord, we give you this time. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to jump right in. I'm going to read the whole text we're going to be looking at today. Uh, Philippians 1, 12 through 18a. It says this. This is Paul writing to his friends in Philippi. He says, I want you to know, brothers, and this, is, this can also be brothers and sisters, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me 
has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of a selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So this, this passage we just read is, is, is really the first part of a section here that goes through verse 26, where Paul is, is sharing kind of from his reflections of his time in prison. Because if you don't know, again, Paul is writing this while in prison in Rome. And so he, this little section from here all the way through 26, which we'll finish next week, is him kind of pondering, reflecting, and, and kind of sharing uh, his, his reality with them. So today we're going to look at kind of what exactly is happening in this moment, what's happening to Paul and how he thinks about it, and then glean from Paul's life and example uh, three truths that allow Paul to live as he lives with such hope and peace in difficult circumstances, and kind of really this counterintuitive hope and peace. So a quick review, I've already said that Paul is writing this from prison in Rome. He's writing in response to an encouragement and support that he received from the church in Philippi, right? And this is more than just a church, it's really his friends. He has a lot of personal history with the church in Philippi. And we've been kind of re- repeating this and laying the groundwork over the past weeks. If you, if you haven't been with us, feel free to go back and listen to the, to the last couple of sermons. But the church, his friends in Philippi, had sent Epaphroditus to him to, to share support and relational encouragement. And along the way, Epaphroditus got really sick in his journey, almost died. So Paul, this whole letter is really a personal letter saying, thank you for your encouragement. Also, Epaphroditus is going to be okay, and I'll be sending him back to you. That's really the intent of the letter. So the tone of this letter is counterintuitively positive. Like you read this, if you were to read from, you know, from, from, from verse 1 till now and keep going, you're like, Unless he told you, you wouldn't think Paul was in prison. You would think his life's pretty rosy. And yet he is writing, because typically when life is hard, we don't focus on other people. We focus on ourselves. He's very, he's very concerned with the well-being of his friends in Philippi. He's very concerned with their mental well-being, their, their emotional anguish over his reality and their reality. He's very concerned about their spiritual vitality. And so you, you wouldn't think that he's in prison. It's, it's counterintuitively positive. It's personal over pastoral. It's full of gratitude and joy. And there's two consistent messages throughout Philippians, this letter. We call it a book. Sometimes it's, it's a letter. The first one is one of benevolent gratefulness, right? It is, he is responding just with the gratefulness of people that have shown love and care. And then it's also benevolent that he is also showing how concerned he is with them, as I've already said. And then the other consistent message is that he is encouraging and charging the church in Philippi to continue to pursue the progress of the gospel of Jesus. And we defined the gospel last week as just the good news of Jesus, that the world is broken and fractured, and most importantly, from our creator God. 
and we are all longing and yearning for that relationship and right standing before God to be restored, and that Jesus is the one who came into our need and met our need so that we could be redeemed and saved. That's the good news. That's the gospel. So just to real quickly make sure we're all on the same terms, and so his biggest concern and message is stay diligent, persevere that the gospel, the progress of the gospel will continue in and through you. So that gets us up to here. So what's happening here and what is, what is Paul doing? So again, the, the Philippian church is concerned for Paul. We've already said that, but let's see it real quick. Verse 12 says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So this, you hear it in this statement. Is I, he's like, I need you to know. I want you to know because I've heard from Epaphroditus. Let's, let's not overly flatten this out. Paul is human. The people in Philippi are human. The church in Rome is human. Everyone around them is human. And there's a human experience. And he, so it's not just like Epaphroditus is like, he came and he's like, okay, here's your, port, here's your support of whatever it was. And hey, also the church in Philippi loves you. It was very personal. He was also like representing the whole of his family. And again, anytime your family is struggling, someone you love and care for, you experience anguish over it. Paul's in prison. They're experiencing anguish over it. They want him to be free. They want him not to be persecuted. And so he is in a very real sense of like saying, hey, guess I, I've heard you and I'm grateful, but I also want you to know that I'm okay. And he says, and, and so that's really what we want to unpack today is like, how in the world can Paul be okay in this moment? And so we look and we see that um, he wants to encourage and assure his friends that he's good. So what reasons does Paul give to his friends for him being good while in prison? And so verse 12 already said it. He said, because why? He says, he says uh, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served uh, to the God, has really served to advance the gospel. So that is his first and greatest concern. That's his baseline for why. Hey, this is good that I'm here because it has served to advance the gospel of Jesus, the cause of Christ, the redeeming and restoring of the world, the making whole of what is broken. So is that that's that's number one. And then he gives evidence of, of how he can say this. So in verse 13, we see that the whole imperial guard and all, and all the rest, he says, like all the rest, they've all, they all know why he's in prison. He is in prison for his faith, his following of Jesus. And so what he is saying is like, hey, guess what? This is good because, because of me being here, I have been able to be the witness that I have been made to be by the work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit to the world around me. All of the guards, all of the prison staff, all of the people, and anyone else, they've had, I've had a chance to share my faith with them. To use a church word, he's, he is evangelizing. He is wanting people to come and respond to the good message of Jesus and the work of Christ. And he's saying, I'm happy because I've had a chance to make Jesus famous. I've had a chance to make him known. He's not saying they've all come to Christ. He's not saying they've all surrendered their lives and confessed and now believe. But he is saying like, hey, I am content because I have an opportunity to do this. Their response is between them and the Lord. He will work in them, but I've had a ch chance to do what I'm supposed to do. And I've done that. So that's the number one, that's number one reason why he, he can say he's seen the gospel advance. Secondly, in verse 14, he says that the boldness of Paul's witness 
his own witness has encouraged the rest of the Christians in Rome to be more bold in the sharing of their faith in Jesus. So he's like, because of me being here, now guess what? It's viral. There, it's happening. Like there's been an encouragement and a swelling up of boldness of, from the people of God who, again, live are living in a countercultural, they're very, living in a very secular world, a very secular city. And yet they are now being bold without fear to proclaim their faith in following of Christ. But this work is not without risk or personal wounding, because if you notice what he goes on to say, is like these very ones who he just celebrated were now bold in proclaiming the gospel. He says some of them, if we look through 15 and 8 through 18, we see that some of these are preaching the gospel out of Rome out of true conviction, while others are doing so out of malice and envy for Paul. So it's not that they're proclaiming a false gospel, a false truth about who Jesus is. They're, trying, they're not trying to defame the name of Jesus. Paul would not celebrate that. That would not make him glad. But what he sees is a false motive. And so he's, but then he's like, they either want to attach their name to, like, to Paul in order to get their own fame, because Paul's known. Paul's in the city. People know it at this point. So they're either wanting to attach their name to Paul so that they can get notoriety, so that they can stoke their pride, you know, or they want to disparage his name because he is a lesser witness because he's in prison and they're trying to hurt his name. But, he, and, but what's Paul's response? He's like, it's water off a duck's back. He's like, I don't care. What I care about is that the truth of Jesus is being made known to the world that he's in. And again, why? Because this is the remedy this is the point. Everyone is seeking and hurting and languishing. He's like, and he's compassion. His compassion moves him to say, this is what matters, not my name. I'm getting ahead of myself. So Paul's message is this. We see it in verse 18. I want to read that again real quick just because I like it. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So Paul's message, I'm good because the work of the gospel of Jesus is progressing through me. One way or the other, while I'm in prison, that's great. So, so what do we do with that? Like, you think about this. Like, is that satisfying to you? Because your life is hard. My life is hard. Some of you may have been in prison. I've never been in prison. This, you know, there's still time. What do we do with that? Because life is hard. Life is difficult. Like, life comes on us, and it weighs on us. And we may never have been in prison and, and persecuted in this manner but man, we have certainly been in the crucible. We have certainly been in a place that didn't seem right or fair. So, so what, what do we do with that? Like, and, I, and it's a really important question. Like, is it satisfying to you to say that, like, can we stand with Paul in this? Paul's not only trying to comfort his friends in Philippi. He also wants his testimony to be instructive for the, for the body of Christ, the church in Philippi, and all, all those that read this letter. And, he, and he's, he, he has reminded them, he's going to keep reminding them through this whole letter, that they, for those who are in Christ, called together as the people of God, they exist for one reason, and that's for the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus in their life. And so, he's, so he wants his, his way of responding to his circumstance to be an instructive testimony to all who are hearing this. And guess what? That's you and me as well. You know, every one of us in this room, Christ followers or not, face a life full of difficulties and hardships. 
where we are constantly wrestling with satisfaction. We're constantly wrestling with peace. We're constantly wrestling with the sense of belonging and fulfillment. And so we have to ask, like, is this satisfying to you? A really important question. So one thing I'm really grateful for, kind of a sign of our, our cultural moment and our generation, is that there, there's been this rise, this upswelling of a value for being transparent, for being real, for courageous vulnerability, to be true to yourself. And we see, a, like, a lot of people who are really in tune with their moment and their own human experience, right? And out of this... We th- what I think comes of this is that we think, like, we, we uphold this as a value, and there is a beauty to it, but we, we think that what this does is kind of keeps us from kind of this external kind of reality of, de- of defining our goodness. And, like, because if we're just true to ourselves internally, then we'll always be good. But really what we, what's happening is that we're still pursuing the same things. We're still defining our truth our moment of reality by how we feel, and often, most often how we feel is based on our circumstances of the moment or what is to come. And I, I just I think about this and kind of what is for us here, and I, I just want to ask, like, are, are, are you, are we tired of this constant sense of insecurity and weariness and fear and, like, just overwhelming, you know, anxiety and burden? Like, that's such a a common thing, like I was just reading, you know, the, uh, a book, and they were talking about the burnout generation. Like this generation is the burnout generation, and burnout used to be kind of a selective thing that was more for like, you know, prominent surgeons and high-powered lawyers, and now it's just a mark of everybody. Like we are just, there is burnout, and I am always in conversations. I'm always battling personally with just kind of like running out of energy, and so I, I just I know that there is a, a weariness, and so what Paul is clinging to is offered to you um, and, and, and to me through Christ, that we can p- persevere with this kind of counterintuitive peace and hope no matter the circumstances. So that's what I want to walk away with, kind of work through for the next few minutes, is what, what is it that allows Paul to have such counterintuitive confidence and peace in hard circumstances? We're going to look at the way to counter to counterintuitive peace and hope. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and it's interesting looking at this text, um, this text is a bit of a kind of a narrative moment. There's certainly things we could glean from it. But what we're going to do is answer this question by looking across Paul's life and ministry, knowing what was true there is true here and has informed his ability to see it this way. And so first we want to start off, if we want, if we want to pursue this way of counterintuitive peace and hope, first, first off we see in Paul that his identity, our identity, must be in Christ. So our identity must be in Christ. And you think about Paul in this moment. Again, we, we said a couple weeks ago, like being in prison is never something you take on with joy. And it's never something that just doesn't affect you. Like there was a stigma in his culture just as in ours. And even if he is there out of conviction and by, by choice to not compromise, he is still facing the label of being a convict of being a deplorable that comes with that. And he is still facing what people outside are talking about. And none of us can say we're, like, we're not impacted by what people talk and say about us. Like we all have to 
engage that and encounter that. So first off, we see he's not identified with all the baggage and stigma as, as, a, as a convict of the label of the moment. Three times throughout this text, we see him say, my imprisonment, or another translation is my chains. And he is talking about this moment, but we can't miss, if we were to read this in full, like as a letter is, <coughs> excuse me, this would be a direct parallel to what he said in, in verse 1, at the very beginning of his message, where he states, hey, you know, he's just out of the gate, like, I am a servant, or, or really a better translation is a slave of Christ Jesus. He is saying that, like, I am bought. I, I don't belong to myself. And he's not a prisoner of man, but he is a prisoner of grace. He is, he is owned by the grace of Jesus. That's his label. That's his name. Not convict, not not persecuted, not whatever else. His name is that he is one who has been claimed by God in Christ by his grace. He has so deeply experienced the freedom, forgiveness, and belonging that Jesus brings that he couldn't fathom claiming his life for any other purpose than what he was created for and restored to in Christ, to love God and glorify him and to love people unto their salvation. Just like Jesus did. That's what Jesus came for. So, he wasn't identified by these external labels. He was identified by who God said he was in Christ. One who was a sinner made saint. One who was dead and made alive. One who was old things and now new things. One who was adopted into the family of God as a son of God and, and a daughter of God as we get to be. Heirs with, the, with Christ. Like, we have the riches of grace you know, we think about identity and like identity is so attached to the things that give us worth and what defines worth is only that which someone is willing to pay. I have a whole bunch of baseball cards that Beckett Magazine says are worth, worth whatever amount, but if people aren't willing to pay that amount, they're not worth that. And so what is our worth? That an infinite God paid an infinite price through his infinite son by sending him into our need and taking on our sin and taking on our death that we deserve and giving us the life that he deserved, not us. That's your identity because that's your worth because God loves you that much. And he is calling us to that surrender. And Paul has experienced that going from death to life. And he can't imagine giving his life to anything else. And so we see that, first off, that's where his identity is. And secondly, we see another picture of his identity is not out of his name. It's not out for his name to get fame, but for the name of Jesus to be lifted up and to get fame. For, but, you know, it's Christ alone. He doesn't care that others, others are stealing his message and attention. He doesn't care about that. He's like, hey, as long as Jesus is getting out there, that's what I care about. That's what I'm here for. So if someone's doing it for false reasons or someone's doing it at the expense of my name, I don't care. And how often are we self-preserving our name as others perceive it? Like, it is so hard. I mean, I am preaching to the choir. Like, this is, I, am, I, I could be standing here in this little bubble and none of you being here, and this would be an effective, needed sermon. Because this, is, this, is, this truth is for me. Like, I am so caught up in do people think I am, I am a good leader? Do people think I'm a good husband? Do people think I'm capable? I, I get wrecked over that all the time. And Paul's saying, it's not about my name. Because my name didn't deliver me. My name doesn't deliver anyone else. Only the name, the work of Jesus can do that. And so... His only concern is that Jesus is made famous. His greatest confidence is that his name 
is known by God the Father. Who cares what anyone else says he is? Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is Paul's frame of reference of himself and the whole world. It's also his greatest concern that he would live in this reality and others would know this reality. So the first reality of us living in this counterintuitive peace and hope is that our identity must be in Christ. Next, we see that our joy is in Christ. So our identity is in Christ and our joy is in Christ. And joy, you know, to think about how to define joy, I was kind of wrestling with this and kind of pulling a few things together. And I think, you know, because I grew up kind of with this saying, is like happiness is circumstantial, joy is, is, is from God. And, and kind of in hearing that, I kind of felt like, Happiness was separated from joy, but happiness is part of joy, right? We can't separate that. So I think, you know, joy is an attitude of delight. It's delight, because we can delight in things in any moment. And so it's an attitude of delight that is grounded in the work of God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit. Not circumstances. Not the moment. Not the label of the moment. But in the work of Christ by our Heavenly Father and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Because we are prone to define ourselves and and to define things by circumstances. We're prone to define God's goodness by circumstances. We're prone to define our goodness and faithfulness and rightness by our circumstances. And we're prone to, to, to define and interpret our opportunities by our circumstances. And we think about that, right? <coughs> Excuse me. So when we think about defining God's goodness by circumstances, then what are we saying? Like, what is the danger? Let me think about Paul. He is going as God said to go. He, he, he is doing what God said to do, and he finds himself in prison out of faithfulness, out of doing what was right. And so if he interprets God's goodness by circumstances, his, to the, the destructive moment is God's abandoned me. God's not good. God's not loving. He can't be because my circumstance is horrible. So he's not true. He's not faithful. He's not real. Instead of denying, in that moment, what we deny is that God created us wholly out of love for his purpose. And in our sin, we all was broken. And we live in a broken world. We are broken people. And we, ha- we, we experience the consequence upon us of living in that reality. And God's promise is that he can sustain you and he can give you peace in any moment. So we, there's a danger of defining God's goodness by our circumstances. Next is our goodness. And man, so many of faithful Christ followers, very convictional, sincere, humble Christians, I see this all the time, and they are constantly a wreck on whether or not they're doing it right. Because they are trying their best to, to do the right things, and yet things don't always go to plan. They've got their eyes set on a a job or a place or just freedom from a certain stronghold in their life, and yet they consistently find themselves over over time with these things not coming to fruition. And they say, well, gosh, I must not be good enough. I must not be lovable for God to give me the strength, or I must not be committed enough for me to hold on to the strength. And what God is saying is like, hey, guess what? Your goodness is not determined by you. Jesus did that for you, right? Right? Like he is the one, he, his rightness, his righteousness is ascribed to you as your, that is what we are, that is what our salvation is, as we trust him to be the means of our wholeness and redemption. And so we can't define our goodness and faithfulness by our circumstances either. 
Again, we pay attention to them. We bring them to the Lord. And of course, like there are some very obvious cases where we can say disobedience and rebellion leads to difficult times. But we also know that we can't just chalk it up to that. And then our opportunities. And again, I heard, like, I hear this all the time. Like, I, I thought this was God's will. But I guess it wasn't because it didn't work out. And, and, and in a way, yes, but not in a way that everything's derailed. Like, our opportunity is to walk in relationship with a heavenly Father who has made himself known to a point that we can always have a chance to walk, to walk with him, even though there's mystery because he's eternal and we're temporal, and we can never close that gap. Praise God, because then he wouldn't be God. He'd be one of us. There has to be a mystery. There has to be a gap. That's where our faith is, but yet it is not a total, I have no other word in my head, and I'm not going to get there uh, other than crapshoot. Like, it's, it, it, like, for it to be more than that, like, that we're not left to that, to where we're just kind of guessing all the time and trying to read the, you know, read the, the signs. Like, he's given us enough to know him and to walk in his will. And then we have mystery, and the opportunity is to live unto him, to trust him, to know that he is present and near in the midst of our opportunities. And this is such a great testimony from Paul. Look at his testimony. His delight is in something else. He is in prison, right, like we've said. There are people that should be with him, that are coming against him, and yet his life is marked by these things. We've already said selflessness, hopefulness, purpose, and joy. His joy is not in his circumstance. His opportunity is not defined by him going and planting that church in Rome. Instead, he's in jail. That's how he got to Rome. It's in the fact that he has an incorruptible hope in Jesus. Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Life is not a matter of, of just having our earthly provision. It's not a matter of just being able to live the good life that satisfies. It is a matter of our standing with God made possible in Jesus and the peace that we have with him and the joy that is sustained by something other than these circumstantial things. Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Our way of peace is trusting in the work of Christ, abiding in the work and relationship of Christ. So we have counterintuitive hope and peace through our identity being in Christ, our joy being in Christ, and lastly, our purpose being in Christ. <clears throat> so as Paul is trying to call the church in Philippi to, we have to be reminded that we were created we were, created by God, we were created by God for his purpose. We, and our purpose, our purpose was given by him. We were created in his image to therefore glorify him by, by multiplying his image across the earth. That's before the fall and after the fall of mankind, of humanity. And so this purpose, and just like anything else, like you think about what is the thing of purpose? It's the thing of passion. Like we're talking about like the deep, satisfying purpose that we all want. We're not talking about like mundane things. We're talking about the things that stir you, the things that hold you, the, not that you're holding on to, the things that hold you, the things of deep conviction. That's the things of purpose we're talking about. And what we're seeing here, what I, not what I'm saying, what God is saying is that that purpose was written on your hearts at the beginning of creation before then. And it is, it is what propels you. It is what every person in humanity longs for. It's why every person in humanity is searching. We were all created with the potential of a creator God. 
We were all created with a sense of, of opportunity and responsibility to steward and cultivate. So it is natural to have a drive, and we are satisfied when that purpose is fulfilled in our life. We can take it to the temporal things, but let's think about the thing that's most important, that is satisfying what God created us for, right? To glorify him, to love him, and to make him known. So you will not be satisfied in this life fully unless your life is satisfying that which God created you for. And in some way, shape, or form, it will culminate in the world knowing the name of Jesus through your life. That is when you know your purpose is satisfied. Yes, it is through being a doctor or an engineer or a teacher or an artist or, or a counselor or, you know, like it's all these little, all these different nuanced ways. That is the culmination of everything we were created for, is to know God and make him known. So that's where we are satisfied. So because that's our purpose in our salvation by Jesus, we're invited into this hope and peace that our purpose can persevere no matter the moment, no matter the reality. That's why in impoverished places and in war-torn places, you see people with the vibrant hope of Jesus. That's why with the person who is living the extremely busy, you know, professional life, who is making choices all the time of what they give themselves to, can, can live without a second on their schedule, but yet live unhurried and at peace because they've made willful, purposeful decisions to their purpose being committed to this. Jesus not only redeems us, he also restores us to our created purpose. And it's an old illustration, but Stradivarius is a beautiful masterpiece piece of an instrument, but to try to dig a hole with it, it does not flourish. Put it in the master's hands and it's wonderful. And so we see what we were created for was this very thing, and Christ restores that purpose, and he claims us for that purpose. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that, that we should walk in them. There is a way and a manner of which we were created for and restored to in Christ. As a matter of fact, his purpose in and through our life is a natural byproduct of our identity and joy being in Christ. You think about it, foundationally, like if your identity is in Christ, your joy is in Christ, meaning nothing else satisfies beside him, how can your life not take on the purpose fully of Christ? So to be a Christian is to trust Jesus as your Redeemer and to become a Christ follower. It's not just about what would Jesus do. It's not just the bracelet where, you know, it kind of leads to thinking about morality and ethics, which is great. We should think about that. That's part of it. But it's much more than that. As Dallas Willard said, it's, it's about living the life that Jesus would live if he were you, if he had your life. If Jesus were an investment banker, how would he be an investment banker? If Jesus you know, we're, uh, we're a, a, a writer of grants and other developmental things for nonprofits. Is that a good description of what you do, Catherine? Was I close? Got out on a limb and it was scary. <laughs> um, how would Jesus do that, right? I mean, like, that's the question. It's not just go and make moral ethical decisions that, ref that, that reflect Jesus. So it's part of it. But it's more so about giving your life over to living the life that Jesus would live that if, if he had your life, if he had your opportunities, if he had your circumstances. That's the opportunity and call. That's what Paul has commissioned. That's, and guess what? That's perpetual. That can't be changed or taken away. What a joy. You're not at risk of losing it. It goes with you. Just like the diaspora, when the people of God were persecuted in the early church and they scattered, the, the gospel didn't skip a beat. It actually flourished. Paul could have easily looked at his circumstances and thought either he had messed up along the way or that God had 
somehow messed up, or maybe that God was not good, like we've already talked about. Instead, he saw the continued promise of who Christ is, who he was in Christ, and what his source of joy and peace are, and that he lives in a broken world that needs Jesus. He needs Jesus so that God can restore all things. So his purpose in Christ, his purpose for being persists. Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There is cause for thanks no matter what. When our lives are hidden in Christ and expressed unto the name of Jesus through all that we do. How often do we allow our circumstances to define our opportunity? Isn't it a wonderful thing to live with such a promise that leads to such stability and consistency in the things that satisfy? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. What else do we have to stand on? And I want to be careful not to take away from the human experience in this. As we said earlier, we don't want to overly flatten this out. There is humanity in this. We're not just meant to deny what it is to be human. That's what I grew up with. I grew up in a wonderful church, but the culture was kind of like you deny the bad parts and just claim the good. And you just choose positivity because God is good and he's real, which is true. But yet what I missed out on was, was the humanity that God says, cast every care upon you. So often when we gather in churches, we say, hey God, just help us to leave all of our distractions behind and just have a time right now this morning. And that's not the heart of the gospel. The gospel is bring it all to me. My grace is sufficient for you. Man, that's the promise. And so what we have here is that this is not this moment where we're just denying our humanity. Make no mistake, what we're reading from Paul is a result of Paul wrestling thoughtfully and prayerfully through his reality. Read through Philippians today if you can. It'll take you less than 15 minutes. If you take your time, it'll take you 20 minutes. And just read and, and like, like kind of try to place the narrative, place the moment. Like you'll see that Paul is so grateful for their encouragement because he is in anguish. He, is, he does feel the burden of his moment. What we're reading is the result of him bringing that to the truth of God in the gospel. We're reading his resolve. We're reading the output of God ministering grace to his moment and reminding him of truth. So we don't want to miss this. Paul, he's wrestled, he's prayed, and he's rooted in the promises of God in Christ, and this is where he is. And the reality is, is that what we have to kind of, as we're bringing it to us, is see if you are in Christ, if you have confessed Christ and believed and been, been redeemed and restored and saved, then your life is not your own. You are not a prisoner to sin or humanity or expectation. You are owned by grace. And that grace is one from a God who loves you, not because of what you do, but because of who he is and that you are his. He loves you because he loves you. So Paul, he's showing us that our life is claimed by Christ and when that happens, what the reality is, is that we've tasted and seen the goodness and grace of God. And when we stay rooted in that reality, we also stay rooted in giving our every breath to the work of the gospel. And so just a quick pit stop as I'm trying to close this down. Just hear an invitation. If you are a Christ follower here and you are like, man, that is not my reality. Don't go try and fix it. Surrender to the God of grace at the foot of the cross where the price has been paid, you've been bought, and you're claimed, and you're renewed.
hear that. You can't fix it. Man, that's our tendency. It's my tendency. He is saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take on my yoke. And, and so there is a promise here. And so our life is claimed. And man, you know, the only really way to step in this way of life is to repeatedly fall into the grace of God shown in Jesus. And this, this leads to getting to the end of ourselves. In our humanity, as we commit to this way of life, like, we are still human. Time is still time. There are still only so many minutes in a day. There are still only so many calories to burn before you run out of energy. There's still only kind of so much kind of heart and mind capacity before you hit your limit. And so, like, we are giving ourselves to an eternal reality. We will naturally come to the end of ourselves. And praise God that what we see is in Scripture is that in our weakness, God's strength is made perfect. God's not surprised by that. He invites us to that moment. And that's the moment where we actually get to experience true joy because we can't explain it any other way. And so one of the reasons we're called together is so that our lives can be an instructive testimony to one another. That's why this matters. You know, we're, 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 our lives are meant to be a testimony, testifying that God is faithful in Christ as our identity, joy, and purpose. And we show each other how to persevere. I mean, a, a quick, like, super simple example. Last week, we're in here worshiping together, and we're singing The Stand. That was last week, right? The Stand. I'm sitting here, right here. I was actually thinking I was next to you guys, Tom and Catherine. And I'm sitting here, and we're singing The Stand, and it gets to the chorus, and it's like, and I'll stand with arms high and abandoned, something to that nature. And, and I'm standing here, and I'm like, and I'm singing from my heart, and I'm feeling compelled to take on that posture of like, my life is not my own. Like, and, I, I, and like, I'm moved by this, and I want to raise my hands in that posture of just surrender and confession, and yet I don't. I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I, I'm just bound up. And I don't know if it's like expectation of people behind me. I don't know if it's like the example that I, I don't know what it was, but I just I was bound up. And out of the corner of my eye, I catch a movement, and Dave Tenney is over here sitting next to where Nathan is, and he's like this. And, and immediately I was like, oh, and I was just, it was just such an encouragement and a testimony of what, like, why surrender is necessary. And I was able to join in with this posture. I mean, it's not, this is not about raising hands in worship. I encourage you to, if that's what the Lord leads you to. And, but this is, it's not the magic sauce. The magic sauce is responding as God leads you. And I was being led by God and I wasn't responding. And the testimony of a brother and his obedience is what bolstered me to be able to walk in obedience and experience the joy and freedom of this moment. Because it wasn't about my hands, it was about my heart in the moment of surrender and trust. And so, man, our testimonies to one another are powerful, and that's why we create these spaces. We create space together to share life, to share worship, and to share serving. And we do this through our Sunday gatherings. We do it through our transformation groups, and we do it through committing to share our lives, our everyday life as the best we can in such imperfect ways. Like, that's why we do these things, is to create space for us to be a testimony to one another, for us to show the grace and love of Jesus and to hold each other to truth. And so I want to encourage you. This is not like, you know, in, get involved in church simply. It is like, this is part of, like, read Philippians again. Like, it is, 
about how God designed the body of Christ to be an encouragement and strength to one another. In this. So that's why we create and pursue these spaces, because this is how we understand to live out what we were commanded and given in the body of Christ. So my encouragement to you is to think about these things that we have, that we have space, kind of these are our responses to how to do this well in the culture that we live in. And I want to encourage you, like, just show up. I mean, it's one of my favorite things that, Lechan- that Jonathan and Rena kind of call us to. It's just the important thing of showing up in each other's lives. Like, how powerful that is. And, man, like, the, the spontaneous need is important, and, like, that's really the kind of, like, where the, the real moments happen. But, like, here matters. And so I just want to encourage you, take advantage of these spaces. Show up to receive and to give. Show up, you know, in each other's lives to encourage and be encouraged in the grace of Jesus. Show up to nurture and be nurtured in the ministry of the Word of God. Show up to, to kind of stumble along together to follow Jesus with a limp or just to be on this journey. And guess what? There is space for everyone here. Like if, there, if you are not sure where you stand with Jesus or you know that you don't stand where we stand, like come and just let us kind of pursue a way of life together that is less about dogma and more about the way of Jesus and kind of seeing how we can be encountered by that. Show up to sure up others' foundations and have your own foundation strengthened. Philippians gives us such an amazing picture of how God is the God of grace who works all things in Christ but uses the people of God to encourage and strengthen one another for God's glory, for his own glory, and that we would encounter the gospel of Jesus through that and be saved, and see the world know his name. Let me pray. Oh, God, what a simple call, but, but huge call, um, an opportunity in our lives, God. We thank you that you have loved us first. We thank you for the pursuing love of Jesus. We thank you for awakening us, God, for stirring us up to long for you. Lord, for creating us with this, 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 this desire to fulfill what we were created for. And I pray that we would each earnestly seek and find our way to you through Christ. Lord, continue to move now, work now, Lord, and uh, as we come to this time of communion, um, and just be glorified in us in Jesus' name. Amen.